So today we're continuing to look at the importance of the narrative about the serpent in Genesis for the history of Satan. Last time we worked our way through the life of Adam and Eve, which is our earliest narrative that we have that expands the story of Genesis in a way that builds Satan into the story. And so in Genesis itself, it's a serpent and there's Adam and Eve, but there's no Satan. And then by the time about the first century BCE or the first century CE, around that period, there begins to develop that idea of Satan having been there as the serpent or working through the serpent or being the serpent in different versions of it. And so the story that the Vida of Adam and Eve, the life of Adam and Eve, and and the Apocalypse of Moses that we read last time, those are both based on that earlier narrative as we talked about it last time. And so we began to see how Satan's story gets expanded by being moved back in the mythical timeline to the time of Adam and Eve and even before. We had that additional story of the fall of Satan and his angels when the image of God was created, right? When Adam was created. Now, what's interesting about this is those stories are obviously circulating beyond just that version that has survived to us. The life of Adam and Eve has survived through the centuries, and we have it to read. However, there were other versions of that same story circulating and people aware of that story from other sources beyond the sources we have. What's interesting is what you read for today on the origin of the world reflects knowledge of many of those stories of Satan and the expansion of the Genesis narrative. It's, it's aware of that, but it turns it on its head, doesn't it? Some Gnostics in the second century and subsequent centuries reinterpret biblical narratives and also reinterpret expansions of biblical narratives, and they turn them on their head. They invert them in different ways, and we'll have to figure out why it is they're inverting it, and we'll soon see that, in essence, a way of quickly summarizing it is that the characteristics we see in the story of Satan building up so far, the attitudes of Satan, his actual character, what he is like in the stories that we've seen so far, get put onto the creator God by Gnostic authors, so that the creator God is the satanic figure in their worldview. And so those stories of Satan get redirected at the God who created the world. But let's figure out what I mean by that. Let me introduce Gnosticism a tiny bit, even though we don't have time to deal with it extensively. On the Origin of the World that you read is an example of what scholars label Gnostic literature, right? So I need to explain to you a little bit about that context of Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word for knowledge, Gnosticism does. Gnosis means knowledge, and we get our English word knowledge from it. So scholars came up with this concept of Gnosticism. There was no one in the second centuries who went around saying, I am a Gnostic. It's a scholarly term. It's a scholarly category that was constructed by modern scholars to make sense of something back then. What scholars noticed was a whole range of examples of maybe some Judean, but mainly Christian authors who were obsessed and focused on the idea of knowledge as the means to salvation. So scholars noticed that there were debates back in the second century and even a little bit earlier, but mainly second and third century CE, 
where some Christian authors, some Christian leaders were accusing other Christians of being about knowledge all the time. The means to salvation was knowledge. It was only in the 1940s that we first began to have more extensive examples of these people who thought of knowledge as the means to salvation writing for themselves what they think. Up to about the 1940s, the vast majority of our evidence, almost all of our evidence, was Christians back in the second and third century condemning and criticizing people they would categorize as Gnostics. They wouldn't use that term, but criticizing these other Christian groups. In the 1940s in Egypt, what we suddenly found, though, was a whole library of books by people who believed that, by the people who used to be attacked. Now we finally have some of what they think. Now we finally have them expressing what they believe, rather than us hearing it secondhand through people who don't like what they believe. We call those people that were criticizing the Gnostics often church fathers. So you have the period of the New Testament, then you have a set of writings known that scholars call the Apostolic Fathers, and then the writings after that, so from the beginning of the second century, from about 100 CE on for several centuries, we have quite a few writings by Christian intellectuals, and we tend to call them the Church Fathers. It's a broad category, you can imagine. So it's the Church Fathers who were criticizing this other form of Christianity, and we didn't hear much from the other Christians until the 1940s. That's quite a long time to not hear from the people and hear what they themselves believe. So now we have a little bit more rich source of information for what scholars have called Gnosticism. So let me go through some of the common characteristics in the Nag Hammadi library that most scholars categorize as Gnosticism so that you have context for on the origin of the world. First of all, that emphasis on gnosis is there in many of the writings that were found at Nag Hammadi. Knowledge. And it's knowledge of the way things are that they're talking about. It's a very specific knowledge that they are talking about when they say the means of salvation is knowledge. That specific knowledge you need to be saved is about the nature of reality and the world around us. The world we are living in, they believe, is a bad place. The whole material realm, our material bodies, are actually a prison. All the physical things we see around us in this world are a bad thing. In fact, all of creation that we see around us, physical creation around us, including our physical bodies, it's a huge mistake. Beyond this bad material realm, including the prison of bodies we are in, is a perfect spiritual realm. The bad material realm around us was an accident that occurred as a result of one of the figures in the perfect spiritual realm. And they'll give different names to it. In this document, you have Pistis and Pistis Sophia, faith and faith wisdom. In the spiritual realm, the perfect spiritual realm, who who do something or emanate something that ends up resulting in the bad situation of the material realm's existence. But this is, in essence, the focus of the worldview that they have. Bad material realm, perfect spiritual realm, there's something trapped in the bodies of human beings, of some human beings, that belongs 
in the perfect spiritual realm. Sometimes it's expressed as a spark within the material realm. And that spark is really one and the same with the perfect spiritual realm and belongs there. It is wrongly trapped in the body. It is wrongly trapped in the material realm around us. It is wrongly trapped in physical creation. Ultimately, all aspects of the perfect spiritual realm, including those sparks that are trapped in our material realm, will return to become part, once again, of the perfect spiritual realm. So salvation is knowledge of everything I've just said to you. The means to salvation is to have gnosis, to have knowledge of everything I've just been explaining to you, and to overcome the material realm, and for the spark within you, if you are one of those sparks, to return to become part of the perfect spiritual realm. Now, in some of the Nag Hammadi documents, there's this clear idea of a savior figure being sent to bring the knowledge. So that's what salvation is, is for the spark within you, if, you're one, if you have the spark from the spiritual realm, to, to escape from the material realm and return where it came from. So in some of the Nag Hammadi documents, that savior figure is Jesus, but not always. In fact, you already in the reading you had, had the, the instructor. That's a bit of an indicator of someone bringing knowledge. But who is the instructor in, in on the origin of the world? Just to link it up with what we're explaining here. It's the beast, which is the serpent, right? And it's linked, it's really the, ex, the expression of Zoe, of life uh, from the spiritual realm, communicating to the material realm through the beast, through the serpent. There were some Christians who believed this. Christianity, early Christianity, was extremely diverse. How did this world come about? We, on the origin of the world, how is it that the bad material realm, as I'm describing it now, how did it come to be in this reading you had? Were you able to sort that out? Yeah, so you throw up your hands sometimes yeah. with this stuff. This is really complicated stuff, and I never imagined anyone would sit down and read it and understand it right away. I, you'll have to study it. Now that you have this discussion, you can read it again, and it might start to make sense. The, the sad thing, let's say, in our context, is that this guy is maybe not the most coherent and logical and ordered expressor of these ideas, right? Jumps around a lot, and he combines, did you notice him quoting all kinds of different writings? Seemingly randomly. Uh, he doesn't have much of a uh, organizing mind. Uh, so let me walk you through it maybe is the best thing to do. To illustrate some of these principles of Gnosticism I'm trying to illustrate, then we'll get to how God is Satan, so to speak within this whole thing. And maybe you were able to analyze that a little bit uh, when you were working your way through it. So the whole document begins with chaos, doesn't it? You guys are familiar with the idea of chaos being there and creation being made out of chaos in some ways. Already from your reading of Beale, right? So this author has that idea. Chaos is there, described as darkness. It's not quite as clearly expressed in this one as it is in some other versions of this. But take a look at section 99. Chaos, you have the darkness, you have the Sophia and Pistis Sophia already there. Then take a look down at the bottom paragraph just after section 99. Do you see the bolded numbers? That's the section numbers. Take a look at what it says here. Then shadow, shadow is the thing that exists here in this chaotic s situation. 
perceived that there was something mightier than it, and it felt envy. And when it had become pregnant of its own accord, suddenly it engendered jealousy. These are things that are attributed to Satan later on, right? Envy and jealousy. Since that day, the principle of jealousy amongst all the eternal realms and their worlds has been apparent. Now, as for that jealousy, it was found to be an abortion. There's the abortion language that you'll often find in these types of writings. Without any spirit in it. Like a shadow, it came into existence in a vast, watery substance. Then the bile that had come into being out of the shadow was thrown into a part of chaos. Since that day, a watery substance has been apparent. And what sank within it flowed away, being visible in chaos, as with a woman giving birth to a child, all her superfluities flow out. Just so matter came into being, out of shadow, and was projected a part of it. And it did not depart from chaos, rather matter was in chaos, being in part of it. You then suddenly see that this jealousy personified, that is central to the abortive material realm, is an archon, a ruler. Look at the next page, 173, second paragraph. And when Pistis Sophia, she's the offspring, uh, so Pistis is there, and then Pistis Sophia is the offspring, and it seems that something to do with what Pistis Sophia thinks results in this whole shadow that results in the bad material realm, that results in the jealousy personified, the central ruler of this bad material realm. You following so far? It's that the world we live in is an abortion, is what we're noticing here. And that it's an abortion with a ruler at its head. An ignorant ruler, isn't it? The ruler of this aborted um, material realm does not have gnosis, does he? And now the ruler's on the scene in this paragraph. And when Pistis Sophia desired to cause the thing that had no spirit to be formed into a likeness and to rule over matter and over all her forces, there appeared for the first time a ruler out of the waters, lion-like in appearance, androgynous, having great authority within him, and ignorant of where he came from. He doesn't know how he came into being. He doesn't know where he came from. He's ignorant. He's the opposite of gnosis. He's the opposite of knowledge. Now when Pista Sophia saw him moving out about in the depth of the water, she said to him, child passed through to here, so they're trying to find some etymology to explain the name, whose equivalent is Yaldabaoth. So Yaldabaoth is one of the titles given to the creator god in some of these writings, not just this writing. Okay, so far so good or whatever, so far so bad. You've got a bad material realm emerging by accident as an abortion, through some emanation from a perfect spiritual being and an emanation from the, a second emanation from that perfect spiritual being. And this is going to be the creator of this world. In many of the Nag Hammadi writings, they identify the creator God of the Hebrew Bible with this ruler that we're talking about right now. And so many of the passages in the Hebrew Bible about God will be interpreted as re in reference to this bad ruler figure. Archon is the word in Greek or in Coptic, and then it's translated ruler for you here. Now, much of what I've explained already comes to some degree from philosophical speculations. And it's directly related to Platonic philosophy as it was developing 
in the first and second century CE. Just to give you more context here so you understand where would they come up with this idea of a divine being and emanations from a perfect divine being and further emanations from that, which we've just seen there. Well, that comes from Platonism, from Platonic philosophy, philosophy that's looked back to Plato sort of as the forerunner, but that, uh, that many of these thinkers had developed their own ideas over centuries and centuries, and by the first and second century CE, you have what is often called Middle Platonism. So these are Platonic philosophers that have nothing to do with Christianity or Judaism I'm now talking about, right? That are the background for understanding this, some of the ideas here. They believe that there's a perfect thing at the center of all that has ever existed. A perfect being. Sometimes they call that perfect being God. And they believe that like a pebble in water with waves going out from that perfect being, that there are emanations from that perfect being. And that as things emanate further, do you know what I mean by emanate? It's like those dropping a drop in water and the waves going out from the center. The further things get from the perfect being, the less perfect they are. But as emanations go out, they're less close to the perfect good that they came from. And so this principle of Middle Platonism is an underlying assumption of just about all the writings of the Nag Hammadi collection. So they're very philosophical types, these guys, as you might have figured out just from reading it. Then the ruler making other rulers. And in this case, on page 174, you have seven of them listed. Sabaoth is the main one to really notice. Because in this particular version, which isn't the case in always, Sabaoth sort of realizes something's not quite right. He's a bit of a semi-good guy among the rulers of the bad material realm. He's somewhat repentant. He's somewhat aware of things not being right here. Whereas the main ruler guy, Yaldabaoth, definitely isn't aware of anything being wrong whatsoever, is he? Uh, and each of these beings, like Yaldabaoth, are androgynous and have their male and female counterparts. Look at this phrase here, which is very key to understanding how Yaldabaoth, the creator god, how he's viewed. Take a look at page 175. Now, when the heavens had consolidated themselves, there's a heaven for each of these rulers. So this is part of the material realm when they're talking about heavens here. These are bad heavens. These are the bad heavens of the bad rulers of the material realm. Now, when the heavens had consolidated themselves along with their forces and all their administration, so they made angels for themselves as well, those rulers, right? The prime parent, that's Yaldabaoth, the creator god. Readings, you scholarly readings, make the uh, demiurge. Just another way of saying creator. It's funny Greek word for creator. So the creator god is the prime parent here. He became insolent, and he was honored by all the army of angels that he had created. And all the gods and their angels gave blessing and honor to him. So they're falsely honoring him as though he's important. And he starts to feel pretty important about himself, doesn't he? And for his part, he was delighted and continually boasted, saying to them, I have no need of anyone. He said, it is I who am God, and there is no other one that exists apart from me. And when he said this, he sinned against all the immortal beings who give answer. The perfect beings in the perfect spiritual realm. He's a, it's an offense against them. 
What is that quoting from? It is I who am God and there is no other one that exists apart from me. Where does that come from? Anyone know? Hebrew Bible. It's basically one of the Ten Commandments in different form, but it gets repeated in different places. So they use passages like that from the Hebrew Bible and turn them on their heads, right? Because the God in the Hebrew Bible for the people who wrote the Hebrew Bible and for many other Christians and for other Judeans is a good God, right? He says that rightly. I'm the only God. He is the only God, right, from their perspective. But from the perspective of these philosophical people here that are writing the Nag Hammadi writings, including this one, they're taking that quote and saying, that's, that's a pretty bad God there. That's actually the ruler of a bad material realm that says that. What's another quote from the Hebrew Bible that the creator God in this narrative says, I am a jealous God. The God in the Hebrew Bible says that, I'm a jealous God linked up to this whole thing. I'm the only God. Everyone should pay attention to me. But for these philosophical people, it's a false claim, right? Because he's ignorant of the fact that he's not the only God. In fact, he's the opposite of a God. He's the opposite of the one who deserves worship. He's an abortion. He's a mistake. And he's ignorant of where he came from. And continues to have this attitude of I am the only one. Everyone pay attention to me. So a lot of these characteristics you can see are the equivalent of Satan for the traditional people. The characteristics we see here being built up uh, around the Yeltibioth creator god figure uh, are those of Satan in many ways. Take a look at the next paragraph right after he says, there's no other one besides me, I'm the only god. Then when Pistis saw the impiety, the impiety of him claiming this, of the chief ruler, she was filled with anger. She was invisible. She said, you are mistaken, Samael, that is, blind God. Samael is actually a title given to Satan in traditional circles. Here it's uh, given to the God of the Hebrew Bible. And here's what she says. This is important. There is an immortal man of light who has been in existence before you and who will appear among your modeled forms. He will trample you to scorn just as potter's play is pounded. And you will descend to your mother, the abyss, along with those that belong to you. Is this ringing a bell to you in relation to any of the stories of Satan we've been reading? And if so, what? So, first Enoch or the John's Apocalypse, that idea of, of Satan being cast down, the fallen angel being cast down. Here it's the creator God being cast down. The narratives about kings claiming to be God that, gets that Satan gets plugged into. Very similar to this. There's even another thing here that relates to the life of Adam and Eve. Does it ring a bell for anyone uh, in relation to that? He has been in existence before you and who will appear among your modeled forms. The idea of the image of God being superior to Satan. Remember that in the life of Adam and Eve? that Satan, the angel, is required to bow down to the image of God, which is Adam. Here it's referring to Adam, immortal man of light, but a spiritual Adam, right? An Adam that belongs in the spiritual realm, not the physical Adam, but another Adam. The ruler being inferior to that, to that being. What's interesting, though, is the timeline is different. Remember, in the life of Adam and Eve, Satan complains that I was here first. Therefore, Adam should bow down to me, not me bow down to the image of God, Adam. 
Here, though, the emphasis is on the immortal man of light, the Adam figure here, actually exists before the ruler God. You're getting the idea, hopefully, of how it's subtly pulling together all kinds of things in a particular philosophical way of expressing religion that ends up with the creator God of the Hebrew Bible being the Satan figure and having the attributes of Satan from other stories. Yeah, let's, let's move forward so that you can see how the spiritual sparks from the perfect realm end up trapped in the creation of this, this bad Yaldebaoth God. Take a look at 177. In most of the Nag Hammadi documents, the way that the connection between the perfect spiritual realm and the material realm is, is expressed is in terms of the creator God of this bad material realm catching a glimpse of something from the perfect realm trying to replicate it, or trying to catch it. And that the perfect spiritual realm tries to counter this attempt of the bad creator God by fouling up what he's attempting to do. And setting up a system where there are perfect spiritual sparks that will be able to be saved and return to the perfect spiritual realm. So there's this plan and counter plan issue that goes on with this, where the perfect spiritual realm has a plan to respond to the Creator God's plan. And obviously, thankfully, the Creator God is always ignorant and doesn't know as much as the perfect spiritual realm. So the, the, there will be a return to the perfect spiritual realm for the elements of the perfect realm that are trapped here. This comes up a little bit, but not as clearly as you'd like it to, as usual with this stuff, on page 177. Here, the prime parent, the Creator God, Yaldabaoth, sees an, a likeness of pistis reflecting in water. Remember, pistis is the original perfect spiritual realm being that emanated the pistis sophia that ended up having the thought that resulted in the abortion of the created, created realm. So here it's that there's a glimpse of pistis, a glimpse of the perfect spiritual realm. And the prime parent grieved very much, especially when he heard her voice. So he hears something like the first voice that had called to him out of the waters. And when he knew that it was she who had given a name to him, he sighed. He was ashamed on account of his transgression, and when he had come to know in truth that an immortal man of light had been existing before him, he was greatly disturbed. This at what will ultimately be the, is the spiritual Adam. He is aware of already in the narrative before this, right? For he had previously said to all the gods and their angels, It is I who am God, no other one exists apart from me. For he had been afraid they might know that another had been in existence before him and might condemn him. And immediately, behold, light came out of the eighth heaven above and passed through all the heavens of the earth. When the prime parent saw that the light was beautiful as it radiated, he was amazed and he was greatly ashamed. As that light appeared, a human likeness appeared within it. Very wonderful. This is the, I think, the immortal man of light that is being witnessed in some way by the creator God. And he's going to model his Adam on that Adam. There are two Adams is the way of remembering it. There's the perfect spiritual realm Adam, the immortal man of light. And there's the Adam that the creator God, Yaldebaoth, is going to create as a, uh, an attempt to imitate the light he sees. But the perfect spiritual realm has to have a counter plan now because this whole thing's all screwed up. There's not supposed to be a material realm. There's not supposed to be a Yaldebaoth. 
They're not supposed to be an imitated Adam. And so they have a plan to reverse that whole thing. Sparks from the perfect spiritual realm that are placed within the material realm by the perfect spiritual realm in order to bring back everything back to the way it should be. To reverse the creation of the material realm. To reverse this whole abortion. To eliminate the plans of this abortive creator God. So he's sometimes called the emissary, the atom of light, the luminous man of blood, the immortal man of light. These are all the, the figure from the perfect spiritual realm. The same guy. Take a look at page 180 now where we see that taking place now. And before Adam of light had withdrawn in the chaos, the authorities saw him and laughed at the prime parent because he had lied when he said, it is I who am God, no one exists before me. It turns out someone else does exist. Yelled at the oath. We just saw a light flash by. When they came to him, they said, is this not the God who ruined our work? He answered and said, yes. If you do not want him to be able to ruin our work, come let us create a man out of earth according to the image of our body and according to the likeness of this being, the atom of light. So physical humans are created in the image of the creator God, but have an element of having been an attempt by the creator God to have it look like and to sort of catch the essence of that other light that they noticed. So that when the atom of light sees his likeness, he might become enamored of it. No longer will he ruin our work. Rather, he shall make those who are born out of the light our servants. So this is their plan to somehow, they're ignorant, remember, to try and get more power and make sure this light that they saw doesn't take over the place. We shall make those who are born out of the light our servants for all the duration of this eternal realm. Now all of this came to pass according to the forethought of Pistis, in order that man should appear after his likeness and should condemn them because of their modeled form. Place within the material realm elements of the perfect spiritual realm that will prove the inferiority of the rulers of this material, bad material realm. Got it? That's what they're saying there. So that's part of the perfect spiritual realm's strategy on how to reverse the mistake. They're going to have elements of the perfect spiritual realm in the material realm to show up the ignorance of the God who says, I'm the only God. And they're going to need to bring those sparks back as well, which is salvation. Here's where the instructor comes in now, the snake. So Sophia Zoe, wisdom life, is another figure, it seems. There was Pistis, faith, who emanated Pistis Sophia, faith, wisdom, and now there's a figure, wisdom life. Sophia, Zoe, complicated, eh? Now the production of the instructor came about as follows. The instructor is going to turn out to be Sophia, Zoe, life, from the perfect spiritual realm, who's going to use the serpent or be the serpent in order to instruct humanity about the knowledge of all this that we've just been reading about so that humanity can return to the perfect spiritual realm. Now the production of the instructor came about as follows. When Sophia let fall a droplet of light, it flowed onto the water. 
and immediately a human being appeared, being androgynous. That droplet she molded, first as a female body, this is the creation of Eve. Afterwards, using the body, she molded it in the likeness of the mother which had appeared. An androgynous human being was produced, whom the Greeks call hermaphrodite, and whose mother the Hebrews call Eve of life, namely the female instructor of life. Her offspring is the creature that is Lord. After the authorities, the rulers, called it beast. So they're now telling you that Eve of life is from the perfect spiritual realm, whose offspring is the creature that is the serpent in the garden who brings knowledge to the trapped spiritual sparks. This is turning the interpretation of the serpent in the garden as Satan on its head quite thoroughly, isn't it? Here it's this Eve of life who is even the sort of predecessor of Eve in some way, in some vague way, who uh, is ultimately part of the plan of the perfect spiritual realm to bring knowledge, to bring acquaintance, to bring gnosis to the sparks that are trapped within the material realm so that the ruler god of the material realm can't be successful, so that he will be showed up, so that he will be put out of business, and ultimately everything will return to the way it should be. Did anyone notice any other places where some of the narratives about the fallen angels come up in connection with the rulers so that our stories of fallen angels from first Enoch are now attributed to the rulers? Take a look at page 182 and 183. Then Eve, being a force, laughed at their decision. So this is the spiritual Eve. She put mist into their eyes and secretly left her likeness, human Eve, with Adam, human Adam. She entered the tree of acquaintance. So this is when the Eve of life actually goes into the tree and becomes the tree of knowledge, acquaintance, gnosis. Remember, she's going to use the serpent to share the knowledge from, of, remember, the knowledge of good and evil is the tree we're talking about here. That tree from which Eve in the Genesis narrative eats and shouldn't, that the God of the Hebrew Bible says not to eat. Here, the, God, the God, creator God says not to eat it but it's because it'll become the basis on which they gain knowledge of who they are and ultimately will be able to free themselves from the creator God, right? Afterwards, when they had recovered from the days, they, they came to Adam and seeing the likeness of this woman with him, seeing Eve, human Eve, remember that the Eve of life, is, the perfect Eve has already gone into the tree, and seeing the likeness of this woman with him, they were greatly disturbed, thinking it was she that was the true Eve, what do they think next here? And they acted rashly. They came up to her and seized her and cast their seed upon her. They rape her. This is the Semyaz story in new form. And remember that there are hints in the life of Adam and Eve that when the serpent slash Satan tempts Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge in, in the Adam and Eve story expansion, that there's, there's implication of lust being involved, right? That, uh, that almost like Satan mates with Eve. We're now having it here put in a different context though, right? Because they think of the creator God as a bad figure. And it's, it's not Satan mating with Eve, it's the creator God mating with Eve. And they acted rashly, they came up to her and seized her and cast their seed upon her. They did so wickedly, defiling not only in natural ways, but also in foul ways. 
What do they mean by that? They explain it next. Defiling first the seal of her voice that had spoken with them, saying, what is it that exists before you? Intending to defile those who might say it, consummation. So they rape Eve, the rulers, including the creator God. So the story of the fallen angels mating with humans now gets planted on the creator God and his rulers. So the offspring of this is who? It's Abel. First she became pregnant with Abel. So that's, it's the offspring of the creator God raping Eve that results in the birth of Abel. They then just quickly give you a quick thing without explaining to you. But this is what a lot of Gnostics think, that there are three types of humanity. It says, now the first Adam, Adam of light, is spirit endowed, pneumaticos, and appeared on the first day. The second Adam is soul endowed, psychikos. He has a soul and appeared on the sixth day, which is called Aphrodite. The third Adam is a creature of the earth, koikos. They're not talking about actual atoms here. They're saying there are three types of humanity. Ones that have the spiritual spark within them, pneumatikoi, spirit endowed. Humans that have a soul, psychikos. And humans that are just earth, from which the Creator God made them. I'm on page 184, a couple of paragraphs down. Then came the wisest of all creatures, who was called beast. And when he saw the likeness of their mother, Eve, he said to her, What did God say to you? So he's talking to the human Eve here. Eve, he said to her, What did God say to you? Was it, Do not eat from the tree of acquaintance, gnosis, knowledge? She said, He said, Not only do not eat from it, but do not touch it. So this is an interpretation of the Genesis narrative. Lest you die. He said to her, do not be afraid. In death you shall not die. For he knows, the creator God knows, that when you eat from it, your intellect will become sober. You will come to be like gods, recognizing the difference that obtains between evil men and good ones. Indeed, it was in jealousy, the snake says to Eve, that the Creator God said this to you, so that you would not eat from it. So back to the jealous God again. So the whole thing's turned on its head. The good guy is the serpent, acting on behalf of the perfect spiritual realm. The Creator God of the Hebrew Bible and of Genesis, the bad guy, and the snake trying to bring the knowledge that will release humanity from the bad rule of the ruler, the Creator God of this world. So they eat it and gain acquaintance. Because it's interpreting Genesis, it still has nakedness involved, right? That they become aware that they're naked of acquaintance. Not naked, naked, but naked of knowledge. They become aware that they don't know something so that they can come to know it. When they become so, became sober, they saw that they were naked and became enamored of one another. They used the sexual sort of language to express this knowledge. When they saw that the ones who had modeled them had the form of beasts, namely the creator gods, aren't much gods at all, they loathed them. They were very aware. So this is the model of how humanity gains salvation. It's through gaining the knowledge. And it's almost like the tree of knowledge of good and evil is an allegory for this author and that the whole narrative of Genesis is an allegory for this author, for the means by which humanity comes to know they're trapped in the bad spiritual realm.
So that gives you a bit of the whole cycle uh, that's involved, right? So that's quite different than how the life of Adam and Eve deals with this serpent story, but it's based and in, in influenced by that expansion of the Genesis narrative that involves Satan, but it has it turned on its head so that the creator God is the Satan in the story. Take a look at 186, more about the fallen angels. Basically, this author seems to know about the, the narrative that we have in First Enoch, maybe not from First Enoch, but from some source about the fallen angels, and uses that narrative in a variety of ways in different places and in a different order. And here we have it popping up again. This is in the context the rulers are envious of Adam. Envy is involved again, just like Satan was envious of Adam in the uh, life of Adam and Eve. Here it's the creator God, not Satan, envious of Adam. Then one Sophia Zoe, wisdom life, a good figure, saw that the rulers of the darkness had laid a curse upon her counterparts. The creator God curses Ad, human Adam and Eve, just like in the Genesis narrative, because they've eaten from the fruit he forbade them from. And coming out of the first heaven with the full power, she chased those rulers out of their heavens and cast them down into the sinful world, so that there they should dwell in the form of evil spirits, demons, upon the earth. This is reworking and alluding to that first Enoch story we had, right? It's there that the angels get cast out of heaven and get cast and put down into a hole in the ground uh, as well, but then their offspring are the demons. Here it's the, the rulers being cast out of their heavens, fallen rulers instead of fallen angels, and the, this producing evil spirits, demons. So hopefully what you've got out of this is a general gist of a very complicated philosophical way of interpreting scripture, and a very unusual to us at least, form of Christianity that knows about the same stories about Satan that we have been learning about gradually. Just like an author like this reworks Genesis and then turns it on its head, it also turns on its head all the stories of Satan so that the stories of Satan get planted on the Creator God. They're associating the stories of Satan with the Creator God of the Hebrew Bible.